Got the uh, Austrian family tree up there, and um, the the founder of uh, Austrian economics is Karl Menger, 1840 to 1921. The uh, the generally accepted position on the Austrian school was that, of course, Menger was the founder. Eugen von Bombardier was his most important student. Friedrich von Wieser, I'm putting him on the side as, as the brother-in-law of Bombardier. Contributed a little bit, but not a great deal. And then Mises, uh, for Ankenser, of course, is a great successor to Bombarver. Story has been sort of changed, revised in recent years, and revisionism can either be good or bad. It's never indifferent. Uh, you're either correcting the historical errors of the past, or else you're adding errors to previously accepted truth. What's been happening recently, I'll get back to this in a minute, what's been happening in the last 10 years or so with an explosion in Menger's study, which is all of the good, it's great stuff, uh, for one thing, Menger didn't write very much. He wrote his great Principles of Economics in 1871. It was supposed to be volume one of a mighty treatise, which the rest of which never got published. This, by the way, just as an aside to scholars, etc., don't write books entitled Part One or Volume One, because often the other parts never get written. <laughs> so this is what happened to Menger. He never completed this. Uh, it was supposed to be an introductory volume. Then he got off on methodology, his famous methodological struggle with Schmuller, and his famous article on the origin of money, and that's just about it. I mean, there were a couple of other things, but basically he didn't write too much more than that. With the explosion of Menger studies, the whole series of essays on Menger, and there will be more of that coming up, fortunately, because what happened was his, all of his papers were for lectures and papers and all that, and apparently in the custody of son Carl Menger Jr., distinguished mathematician, University of Chicago, uh, who refused to allow anybody to see them. This is, of course, a mystery in itself. Why did he refuse to do this? Tied up, by the way, with the mystery of why Menger retired early in 1903 from his chair and didn't do anything after that. Sort of retired and had his famous library, and that's about it. At any rate, the story is, I'm not sure, this might be apocryphal, and this is, I realize, a reporting rumor here, but it's interesting anyway. The story is that Carl Menger Jr. was haunted for all of his life by the fact that he was apparently an illegitimate son of Lee Carl Menger, Carl Menger Sr., uh, by a housekeeper. And in those days, of course, in, in Victoria and Vienna, I don't know if I use that statement, this was a bit real shock and, and whatever. It was swept under the, the, the rug. And apparently one of the reasons why perhaps why Menger retired from his chair early in his life, or earlier than he had to, and sort of and because of this potential disgrace. Anyway, Carl Menger Jr., therefore, refused to allow the papers. He's still at the age of 90 whenever he died. still felt this terrible stain of illegitimacy. Uh, apparently, it was impossible to tell him that these days things are different. So he died a couple of years ago, and now the papers are at Duke University and the process of being cataloged and open to scholars. <clears throat> so we'll know more about Menger's ideas and where, where he stood on various things as, as time goes on. So whatever I say about Menger is going to be fairly tentative. <clears throat> um, but one of the problems with the, with the explosion of Menger, interest in Menger is there's also an ideological, ideological rift connected with this, this uh, hidden agenda and the uh, accolades given to Menger, namely the depreciation and deprecation of Bombardwerk. So as Menger has been lauded as the, as the great founder of the Austrian school, which he was indeed, the achievements of Bombardwerk have either been denigrated or forgotten and uh, sort of stuffed away. And this is part of what I call the nihilist trend in the modern Austrian movement. There's also a, a sort of a, an attempt to claim that Menger and Bombardwerk were totally different disagreed on almost everything and so forth and so on. I don't think that's true. I'm, I, I'm not prepared to state one way or the other. As I said, for one thing, the Menger papers have not been uh, uncorked yet or studied. 
<clears throat> I think this is artificial. Artificial. Uh, this, uh, the uh, romantic story, and it is true, it's a true romantic story, is that Menger wrote his, published his work in 1871 as a, as a dramatic revolutionary trend in the, in the German scene, German-speaking scene and, in general. And two young economists in their 20s, Wieser and Bombavec, who were brothers-in-law, I'm not sure if they, when they became brothers-in-law, but fairly early in the game, became Menger's great disciples and, and eventually, uh, both eventually taught at the University of Vienna after many years of teaching in other places. And they, dis- they came to disagree fairly sharply. I think it's, uh, uh, Wieser uh, was uh, certainly a praxeologist. He wrote on methodology in a sense, I think, more than Bombavec did. But his basic view, and he also contributed to marginal utility theory and certainly opportunity cost theory, but basically his whole, the whole drift of his approach, I think, was much more sort of pre-neoclassical or pre-Keynesian. He did not believe, for example, in time structure of capital, as, as Bombardier and Menger did. At any rate, the two of them, and this is Mises told me one time in the seminar, uh, the two of them were brothers-in-law, very close friends, and they never discussed economics, once they got to the point where they disagreed on stuff. They just never talked about it. They talked about the weather or what's going on in Vienna, the, the opera and stuff like that. And they confined their arguments to the written page where they black-lashed out at each other in a polite but devastating manner. So I think it's kind of a charming solution to the family question. <laughs> Certainly, both of them thought of themselves as, as Mangerian disciples, as fulfilling and standing on the shoulders of Menger. They sort of drifted off in the methodology and, and not doing much. One of the interesting things about Menger, which I, by the way, I just found out fairly recently, is he was the tutor of Crown Prince Rudolf, the successor to the Austro-Hungarian throne, and sort of did with him apparently what he did with the uh, Archbishop Fenelon did with uh, the, the Duke of Burgundy back in the early 18th century France, late 17th century, early 18th century France. Now, one of the, one of the problems here, I'm not sure what Menger's political economic views were. It's, to me, it's unclear. According to um, uh, the Barry Smith book, there's an article on Menger's political economy, and the Barry Smith book is... Excellent compendium called, it's called Austrian Economics, a series of uh, essays really on Austrian philosophy underlying Austrian economics. Anyway, there's an essay there on, on Menger's political philosophy, which sounds pretty grim. It's sort of very conservative, semi statist, Austrian whatever. According to Eric Streisler, on the other hand, I, just, uh, met up with, I met with him a couple of weeks ago in Austria, he claims that Menger's lectures, are, it's clear from Menger's lectures, unpublished, of course, he's really a hardcore laissez faire person. So I leave that up. I mean, I, I, I have no way to resolve this yet. At any rate, those are two views about Menger. And the, well, the Meyerling approach was apparently Menger tutored Crown Prince Rudolf in laissez-faire doctrine. He, since uh, Crown Prince Rudolf was the successor of the Austrian throne, the idea was he would then take over and pose classical liberalism and laissez-faire liberalism from above, so to speak. Uh, I mentioned Archbishop Fenelon because that was his plan of how to bring laissez-faire economics and politics to France. Here they were living in the absolutism of uh, Louis XIV. It was sort of the epitome and apogee of absolutism and mercantilism and all the rest of it. And here's Archbishop Fenelon, who was a laissez-faire, anti-war, anti-militarist, all the rest of it. And how do you, what do you do about it? How do you convert the king? Because the idea of building a mass movement was kind of considered kind of uh, bizarre. I don't think it was considered thinkable in late 17th century France. Previous mass movements have been, have been wiped out by the French monarchy. What Archbishop Fenelon decided to do was convert, get a hold of the crown prince, the, the, the grand the dauphin, who was going to be the uh, grand dauphin, who was the grandson of Louis XIV, was supposed to take over the throne of France and convert him. He was the Duke of Burgundy. And Archbishop Fenelon got up, became the, con- the confessor and then the, the tutor of the Duke of Burgundy, and he formed what was called the Burgundy Circle, a whole group of people at the court, 
or laissez, the top laissez-faire scholars, historians, political philosophers, and economists in, Europe, in, in France, and worked on the, on the Duke and converted him. So that by the time he grew up, he was totally dedicated uh, to laissez-faire, eliminating all the status, eliminating the taxes, the controls, and all the rest of the whole structure of uh, quasi-totalitarian statism that Louis XIV would impose. Well, unfortunately, what happened was about a year before he would have taken over the throne, he and his entire family were wiped out in the measles epidemic. That was it. The whole plan, a 25-year plan of converting the French monarchy was out in dust. Poor Fayon was, of course, in despair at this. I don't blame him. Well, that's one of the problems with this kind of strategy. You rely on one, converting one prince or something. What do you do if the prince corks off? That's... So uh, essentially the same thing happened apparently with Menger and, and, and Prince Rudolf. There's all sorts of Meierling revisionism. Those of you who are interested in historical revisionism, this whole area, since again, I, I, I don't really know German, there's very little written on this in English. <laughs> but apparently there's a, whole, there's a whole thing, of course, the Orthodox view, as you all know from the Charles Boyer picture or whatever, or later movies, was that the Archduke Rudolf committed suicide and, and, and killed his lover and whatever uh, in 18, I guess 1889. There's other wings, other much more interesting revisionist views, uh, one of which that he was committed suicide because he was laissez-faire with losing out, or whatever, or coming war in Europe. The other one, much more interesting one, which, which Leland Yeager, by the way, is convinced of, is that he was murdered by the statists in the, in the Austrian court who didn't want him to take over. So I'll leave that with you for further research if you're interested in pursuing Meierling revisionism. So uh, apparently one of the reasons why uh, Menger... So I've lost interest in scholarship and didn't do much in the later last 20, 30 years of his life is because of the death of Prince Rudolf, the end of the Rudolf experiment, so to speak. To, to set the, the stage of uh, the revolution that Menger effected, indeed, and Menger von Bavarik, the Austrian Revolution, is that um, he was reacting against, of course, the historical school, which, which was dominant in German-speaking countries, <clears throat> headed by Gustav Schmuller, who believed there were no economic laws, partly because uh, he was interested in building up the state uh, state power in Prussia and the rest of Germany, and, and it was uh, inconvenient to have anything, any economic laws out there which might contradict or conf confound uh, government decrees and actions. As a matter of fact, the famous phrase of Schmoller, which Mises likes to mention from time to time, is that the function of the University of Berlin, which of course the, the creation of the Prussian state, the function of the professors of the University of Berlin is to form the intellectual bodyguard of the House of Hohenzollern, the, the dynastic Prussian uh, monarchy. And when Menger's Principle of Economics was published, it was greeted with hatred and, and of course, some bitter derision and hatred by the Schmollerites, who began to organize a cadre campaign against it. And then Menger got caught up in the same methodological conflict, explaining why there is such a thing as economic law and why it's not just historical bound and all the rest of it. What Menger did in this uh, principle is really revive the continental tradition, scholastic economic tradition, tradition of Catalan and Turgot in 18th, 18th century France, the tradition, of course, of, of subjective value theory, of individual action, that's really praxeological work, focus of individ on individual action and, and individual expectations and, and acting through time, and the fact, of course, the consumers valuing the, the, the good determine the price of the good and, and also determine the value of the, uh, the factors of production. So the whole Austrian, the whole basic outlines of Austrian uh, doctrine were in Menger's principles that weren't fully worked out, but they were sort of in there. And they were essentially a revival and a development of the, of the scholastic medieval late, and late Spanish scholastic and 18th century French tradition. Well, there was, as I say, there's a fight in Germany, German-speaking countries, there was a fight with the Schmollerites. Uh, in England, of course, there was classical economics, classical economic, which the Austrians never really grappled with too much because they were, they were much more concerned with grappling with Schmoller 
it's kind of a kind of a sweet thing that happened with me in the seminar. Me in the seminar, the one time we really had an argument. It was a very friendly argument. We were arguing about my deviation, one of my major deviations from Mises, which is on monopoly theory. And I was claiming there's no such thing as monopoly on the free market. Anyway, one, so the, the discussion ended when he accused me of being a Schmollerite. The interesting thing is that nobody else in the room, I think, understood what he was talking about. I understood this was the ultimate insult <laughs> an Austrian level at a critic. So the, the Austrians never really came to, to grapple with the, the English classical tradition, understood what, you know, where they stood in relation to it. After all, England was far away. They were fighting with the German, uh, German situation. The English classical school, uh, my, my vision, as Schumpeter would call my vision of the history of economic thought, uh, is that the English classical school is the great detour, the great diversion from the mainline scholastic French tradition. The scholastic French tradition was a scholastic dash French tradition. Continental tradition was a, a subjective value theory. Uh, it was basically what I call pre-Austrian. I realize it's anachronistic to say it, but that's really what it was. Uh, with Adam Smith and with Smith and Ricardo, we have a, and John, and the middle, James and John Stewart, we have a tremendous shift toward a new kind of theory, theory which still plagues us, of course, to the present day, namely that the, the real, real va determinant of value of, of prices, values and prices of goods, is not consumer util subjective utility, but objective labor pain, labor toil, whatever you want to call it. And this was established, you know, basically Smith and Ricardo and... It, was then, it then fell out of favor in England and was restored by John Stuart Mill in a, in a tremendous act of filial pietism, paying his great debt to his father, and uh, by, by sheer intellectual bravura and the fact that he had tremendous stature in England at that time, won the day again, restored Ricardianism to its unfortunate place in the, in the history of thought. So when uh, Menger created kind of the Austrian theory, Standard, well, the standard art discussion since that of, of marginalism until very, very recently, of course, the standard discussion of history of thought books was, well, marginalism popped up in three, independently in three countries, Menger in Austria, Jevons in England, and Valois in Switzerland. And they're all basically the same. And so the, the, the basic view of history of thought, as I said, until very recently was, well, they're all about the same. Well, Menger, Valois, I mean, Menger, uh, Jevons, and Valois, except that Menger didn't know math. Menger was... It was inferior if he didn't understand mathematics. Therefore, he should concentrate on Jevons and Valois. Of course, Valois has really taken over micro, micro, modern microeconomics. If you read, for example, one of the most uh, repellent and odious works written on von Valois by Stiegler, to which Stiegler has his PhD dissertation called Product Productivity with Production and Distribution Theories, where he has a chapter on Menger, a chapter on von Valois. He really he did, he didn't like Menger, but he hated von Valois. All bad people hate von Valois. He's be a key. And uh, what he said about Bob Warwick, well, he said he didn't understand mathematics. Basically, that's it. And unfortunately, and these, these guys did understand, both Menger and Bob Warwick were trained in mathematics. They understood it all too well, which is why they rejected it. This, of course, the idea of knowing mathematics and rejecting its application in economics is not, does not even occur to the mathematical economists. It's just outside their ken. It's an unthinkable thought. Well, then what happens, well, Austrian economics, even though this was the official view, so to speak, Austrian economics was extremely influential in the United States. With Fetter, as uh, Fetter is a very important Austrian, uh, Davenport, Green. These were important Austrians who ignored the British classical tradition or attacked it. Unfortunately, what happened in the United States was in World War I, something snapped in American academic economics, and theory drops out. Institutionalists take over. Except for a few people here and there, Fisher and Knight, who were unfortunate sort of pre-Modernist types, pre-Chicagoite. Fetter lost interest in economic theory, more or less, and got hung up on monopoly. 
facing point monopoly, which he spent the rest of his life on. So unfortunately, this left a vacuum, and institutionalism poured in. So the American, a dumb-dumb variant of the Schmoller historical school. I mean, this is historical school people with no knowledge of history or, or social science or anything. So these are the guys who sort of took over economic economics and left a theoretical vacuum in economic in American economics. Well, this meant that in England, which of course was sort of the revered home of economics, supposedly, what happened in England was that the Austrian contribution, in this case Jevons and the Austrian contribution was very cleverly and cunningly trivialized by Alfred Marshall, his mighty work, Principles of Economics, and disposed of it that way by trivializing it. And from then on, Austrian school was not considered, not even mentioned, thought of by English economists, by Cambridge economists, or by anybody else in English tradition. Uh, and I grew up, I cut my eye teeth on Marshall. We had a very interesting uh, college seminar, senior seminar. We spent the entire year on Marshall, going through every chapter. And it was very interesting. So I recommend it, if there were, if there were, especially if there were nothing else to read. <laughs> Certainly better than Keynes. But um, it was very interesting because the... Uh, that was considered economics. And what he did with marginal utility theory, he, tr he trivialized. He said, well, it applies. It's interesting. It fills a gap in the Ricardian program because Ricardo didn't really, really didn't consider consumers. It sort of explains consumer demand. That's it. And we, we finish it off. Because, of course, as you know, the famous Marshallian scissors, uh, every price is determined partly by demand. That's the demand's blade and the supply blade or the cost blade. And of course, the really important thing is the cost blade because that's the long run, the real gutsy thing, the equilibrium thing. Whereas consumers are sort of, yeah, they're sort of the, 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 whim, the creatures of caprice and whim, and they, they change their minds all the time, a hell of it. And so the really important thing about economics is the cost. And the real important thing about cost, of course, is labor pain, or back to Ricardo and Marx and all the rest of it. It was a very clever device that he used. You can't say he ignored marginal utility, he just trivialized it. Got encapsulated in a couple of uh, appendices or whatever, and that was it. I remember when I was taking uh, <clears throat> history of thought at Columbia, in those days the Columbia Graduate School was a very high, high, top department, no question about it, uh, and not formed was present sorry state, ranked among the, among the top three graduate schools, and my, my professor was J.M. Clark, a revered figure. I asked him, I said, well, well, I didn't know anything about Austria, and I asked him about Jevons, I knew Jevons was some important, I don't have to read Jevons, he said, it's all incorporated the Marshall. I'm sure if I had known about Austrians, he would have said the same thing about that. So that takes, it sort of shoves everything aside, Marshall then takes care of everything else. And this was before the Keynesian takeover. This was the this is the Marshallian takeover. Of course, the Keynesian takeover is really part of that in a larger sense, since Keynes was a Marshall student. So, all right, to, to sum up Menger very quickly, now, what did he contribute? Again, he essentially brought back or developed the scholastic tradition, the praxeological method, the focus on individual action, entrepreneurship. All this comes in, of course, time, uh, the time uh, structure of production, yeah. the focus on individual, the the fact that individual values by consumers determine the, our expected values of consumers determine the value of the factors of production that entrepreneurs are willing to invest in. The whole, and the whole Austrian framework, if you read, you know you're reading an Austrian book that reads differently. Austrian books read differently, look differently, smell different from neoclassical books. One thing is no math in them, very little. But it's, it's all, they're clear, they're logical, they proceed step by step. There's no sort of, sort of sudden flights of abstract fancy not grounded in actual individual action. But what about von Bawerk? What von Bawerk did was he developed this uh, outline, which Menger contributed, and particularly developed the value theory, developed the value and price theory, very important, this famous marginal pairs, the horses, you know about the horses, the, the first horse and the second horse and all that, developed the law diminishing marginal utility brilliantly, and of course developed the entire capital interest theory. He was the one who rescued capital interest theory from neglect. And uh, as I said, always was considered that von Bawerk was the mainline Mengerian. 
And it's only the last 10 years or so when Bombardier has been deprecated by, uh, by Lachmanians and other people. So now that Bombardier is so evil Riccardi, and Menger was the only true, Menger was the only true Austrian. Uh, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a current fancy which has been developed. I don't think anybody before that ever thought that, including Menger or Bombardier. Now, there are attempts, uh, Eric Streisler, for example, has attempted to say, no, no, there are tremendous differences between Menger and Bombardier. Uh, Menger, for example, when he retired his chair in Vienna, conferred the chair upon, there's only one chair, person can hold a chair at one time, he conferred it upon Wieser. Um, presumably he liked Wieser better. It still doesn't really establish much. But he said various things like he didn't like Bombardier's capital theory. Terrible mistake. Okay, terrible mistake. So what does that mean? Uh, the Schreisler view is that, uh, he's written several articles on this, is that, oh, well, he said that it means that he didn't believe there was such a thing as a, he believed in time preference. We know that. We know Menger said that time preference was important. But somehow he didn't believe the time preference was, was reflected in the rate of interest. There was no rate of interest. There's too much of equilibrating, equilibrating thing. Only, only 2,000 rates of interest around. There's no one rate of interest. There's no tendency toward it. Well, that's possible. I don't believe it. In fact, I don't believe it. I, think Menger, I don't think Menger rejected equilibration. Kersner, in a very interesting article in the Atlantic Economic Journal about eight years ago, so he's ahead of a whole issue on Menger. Uh, he's a very subtle article, a typical Kersnerian article, very subtle. I mean, he's, he's, he under, he's one of the most understated economists I've ever read. You have to read him with great care, and it's pretty obvious that he's, he's refuting this idea that there's a big split between Menger and Bombarder, and that they're really fairly similar. Now, if you look, if you look at Ben Bombarek himself, what does he say about Menger? He doesn't say that Menger doesn't believe in a rate of interest. He says that Menger believes in a rate of interest, but it's incorrect. Yeah. Uh, Bombarek said, by the way, I recommend Bombarek highly. He's one of the great, I, I, I love reading Bombarek. He's great, one of the great, probably the great polemicists in the history of economic thought. He sits down with different economists and pa very patiently, paragraph by paragraph, page by page, demolishes them in a very polite manner. They're left as rubble. <laughs> What he does with Menger, he's very respectful about Menger. Menger's a great guy, he's had a separate great insights. However, unfortunately, he's got a very incorrect theory of interest. This theory of interest is the so-called use theory. But somehow, and he explains it very, very, very usual, lucid, brilliant, lucid manner, that Menger somehow believe that when you buy, when you buy uh, capital goods, when you buy factors of production, you also, there's also an extra, you, you pay a price for them, as Roger said today. Uh, but you're also doing something else. You're also paying an extra surplus for the use of the factors of production, for the disposing of, of the factors of production. And Bombardier, very carefully, page after page, says, look, there's no, there's no difference between the use of something and the, and, the, and the thing itself. When you buy something, you buy the uses of them. That's the whole point. You buy a machine, you buy all the uses of the machine. There's no extra use payment in addition to the payment of the machine. Very beautifully and lucidly and carefully, he, he demolishes Menger. Obviously, Menger doesn't like to be demolished. There are very few people in the history of social thought who love being demolished. There might be one or two here and there, but I don't know of them. Okay. And I think that's it. I don't think the argument is over equilibration. I think the argument is over use theory. And Bombardier, of course, brings in the time preference theory of interest. And uh, somebody asked uh, Roger, uh, why did Bombardier reintroduce it? I really don't know that. It's a, it's a famous puzzle in the history of thought. Bombardier's volume one, Capital Interest, is a total demolition of the productivity theory. My only quarrel with Bombardier is a little unfair. He's unfair to Turgot. There's no question about that. He's un what he does is his, his strategy was, here he's writing the, interest, the definitive interest theory, capital and interest theory. He started by smashing everybody before you. Well, it's kind of lovable. On the other hand, once in a while, you're, he's un unfair to people. Because <laughs> Turgot really had the whole uh, Austrian theory encapsulated. And, and we know that Bombardier, much as I revere Bombardier and love him, Unfortunately, we know that he lied about Turgot because we know that there's, a, there's an unpublished manuscript of Bombardier's 
written about eight years before his book came out in the seminar of Carl Knies on Turgot's theory of interest. And he said there that he hails Turgot's theory of interest as great and wonderful and so forth and so on. When he gets eight years later to publish the book, he dismisses it as just physiocratic nonsense about land fructification. So something happened there, something in the eight years. <laughs> and I, said, I think it just didn't fit his strategy, so to speak. At any rate, this, this, uh, this unpublished work, which I'd love to see translated and published someday, is in the possession of F.A. Hayek. Von Walrich's widow gave it to Hayek, young Hayek, in 1919 or something, and still somewhere in Hayek's repository. That's something, some other research project for you. So von Bombardier then establishes the time preference theory and beautifully demolishes. There's no, there's no extra surplus. There's a difference between the, the productivity of capitalism, the reason why there's a price of capital goods, the interest payment, the time discount. And for some strange, crazy reason, in volume two, he brings it back. Not only does he bring back productivity, he makes it the most important element. So it's a total contradiction between his volume one and volumes two and three. Uh, Frank Fetter's contribution was to demolish von Bombardier in turn, saying this, is, this doesn't work and to establish the so-called pure time preference. The reason why we call it pure is because there's been all these admixtures, impure admixtures of productivity theory and all sorts of other stuff. We're trying to distill the purity, pure causal factor. A couple of uh, famous problems with Bombardier, alleged problems. Again, I think the reason why Bombardier has been particularly attacked by the nihilist forces in modern Austrian economics is because he's obviously clear, it's obviously equilibrating, it's obviously part of a, of a great economic tradition. It's also what Mises... Mises built his theory on. Obviously, Mises is an elaboration of von Warburg, an application to uh, money, <coughs> theory of money. So if you eliminate von Warburg, you're also implicitly eliminating Mises. You'll cut the ground out from under Mises. It's a strategic ploy on the part of the nihilist forces. I mean, the thing is about the nihilists is they, they don't like Mises, they don't like von Warburg. Who are they going to like if they call themselves Austrian? There's only Menger is the only one left, and he's far enough in the past to sort of be safe, I suppose. One, one alleged problem with Bombardier always comes up, so I'm gonna, I will talk about that, is why is it that an increased saving and investment always lengthens the structure of production? Why is it always a more roundabout process, production process? Why can't it be in a short production process? And the answer is very simple. It's like, I like to call it, you know, have a little grid here, two-by-two two grid. This, of course, is simplifying the, the picture, but I think you'll see the story here. Here you have production processes, less productive and more productive. I mean, in reality, of course, there's a whole spectrum of, of productivity. I'm making a two-by-two two grid here. And here we have shorter, in other words, coming early, uh, and longer. Well, if a process is very short, if it takes you know, like five minutes, and very productive, it's going to be used already. It's not a problem. It's like mana dropping from heaven. If you have mana dropping from heaven, or the shmoo, if you remember the early, early Al Cap, the shmoo is infinitely productive. It can be used for anything. Well, obviously, you're going to snap it up. I mean, it's, going to, it's, it's already going to be used. So that is no longer part of human action. It's, it's, whatever is there has already been used up. Okay. On the other hand, if a process is very long and produces almost nothing, it's not going to be used at all. Only morons would use it. I mean, in other words, if it takes you 50 years to produce one widget, you're not going to do it if you, know any, if you have any brains at all. So this is out of the picture, too. So you leave out, you toss out the long, unproductive processes and the short, very productive processes. You're left with two things. You're left with short, less productive processes versus longer, more productive and so when you save and invest, you decide when you're going to give up early consumption and, call, you know, and up for a longer but more productive process. So that's why more saving investment is always a longer process of production. It's very simple if you look at this grid work. And of course, he's got the time structure of production, wonderful analysis of capital and, and interest. Another thing I should say about uh, Bunger Umbombarek and, and the milieu they were involved in it's not an accident. I think it's a little, uh, Emil Cowder, I think, was the first one to, to analyze this and point this out. 
uh, and I think it's, it's actually on the, on the ball, is that uh, there's, it's no accident that the uh, value climate, the epistemological value and value climate in Austria is completely different than it was in Germany and Britain. Namely, in short, Austria was Catholic and always had been Catholic, whereas Germany, northern Germany was Protestant, and England, of course, was Protestant. And what this meant in, in uh, epistemological and value terms is that the, in Austria, they still continued to read Aristotle in the high schools until very late, certainly by the time Menger and von Wawrat were growing up. They were steeped in natural law, natural rights, and Aristotelian epistemology in general. Northern Germany and uh, England and Britain were influenced by Calvinism and Protestant evangelicalism, which tossed out the so-called scholastic method. And in addition, in addition to that, of course, Aristotle was not read. Hegel, of course, was, was Protestant or some form of Protestant. So we have the Austrians steeped in a very different tradition, religious and philosophical tradition, than either the Germans or the British. And the new book by Barry, edited by Barry Smith, the very interesting thing about that is he points out his best article there is one by Smith himself on the, uh, the philosophical climate of Austrian economics. He points out not just that they were reading Aristotle, but the, the, the big philosopher of uh, Austria was Franz Brentano, who was an Aristotelian realist, the guy read all the time, all over the place in Austria, and also points out that Menger's principles, he has paragraphs from Menger and paragraphs from Brentano showing almost identical in their basic epistemology, their view of natural law, their view of essences of uh, uh, so-called exact law, the essences of, of action, the connected cause and effect. All these things very close to Brentano. They knew each other, by the way. They interacted a lot. Their value theories were quite similar, too. The subject of value theory of Brentano was quite similar to that of Menger. So there's the tremendous interaction between the Menger and Bombardier people on the one hand and the Brentano people on the other. In Britain, you had an even worse situation from my point of view. And then we had Calvinism rampant, which was, first of all, dominant in Adam Smith. I don't think it's an accident Adam Smith tossed out short-run consumer value. He knew about subjective utility because in consumer subjective value theory, because Turgot was, he knew Turgot, he was a friend of his, and he read this stuff. But Smith, being a Calvinist, could not believe that you could rely on cons consumers because they shouldn't have any, any, any dominance at all. Consumers were fickle, and they, were, they, they spent a lot, and, they, and they, they, they believe in luxury expenditures. They're obviously sinful anyway. The real, determinant, the real core determinant was thrift and industry, hard work and thrift. And so we have in Smith a bias toward thrift, desire to tax consumption heavily, for example, and to, and to stimulate, to have usury laws, to, to channel saving into so-called productive investment. And also the emphasis, of course, on labor pain as the real, as the real basis of value. It's true that Ricardo was not Calvinist, but James Mill, who was Ricardo's control, that's a strong term, but I think more and more believe that James Mill was the real heart of Ricardianism. James Mill was a Scottish Calvinist and imbibed the whole doctrine of Scotland, came to England and then continued it. John Stuart Mill, of course, was his father, had a very peculiar relationship with his father. And the only place where Freudianism might have some kind of some kind of truth value, I think, the mill-father-son mill relationship. Very weird situation. Anyway, John Stuart Mill re-establishing this whole doctrine. And with Marshall, uh, interesting enough, if you read Marshall, there's, there's Calvinist moralism constantly throughout. I mean, here he is, this allegedly value-free scientist talking about demand curves and all that. But he's always constantly shoving in stuff about the importance of thrift and, and all that sort of stuff. There's, this, there's this sort of a neo-Calvinism redolent throughout the book. And I, I don't think it's an accident that then... But, People who are neo-Calvinist types don't like to talk about consumers because consumers are fickle and they spend and they're luxurious and they're sinful anyway. Whereas pain and hard work and thrift is really good stuff. I don't, I don't know of any labor theory of value person who was not brought up in the British tradition. Marx, of course, was, economically was Ricardian. 
I'd say I think von Bobrick, despite his peccadilloes and bringing back productivity, the key person in the development of theory of capital interest, I, I, I recommend reading him. I think he's great. I love the slow, patient demolition of the enemy. It's magnificent. So I was promised a, a reference to Marx in this thing. Uh, maybe I should have recommended some more of these readings, like Barry Smith, etc. I've just gotten finished with, with dealing with Marx in my, in my own work, so let's uh, say uh, <laughs> I want to inflict the pain on other people. <laughs> The interesting thing about Bombardier's refutation of Marx, which of course is a famous refutation, which he um, his review, so to speak, after the theory of interest, he sort of had the basis of it in his theory of capital interest. But after Marx's Volume Three of Capital came out, was put out by Engels, Bombardier does the ultimate demolition of it. He uh, was generally accepted by economists of the day. They, you're right. I mean, and really until this day, there were. Marxist economists are very weak on labor theory of value. They're not labor value theorists. Uh, even Joan Robinson and people like that. Well, of course, we know labor theory is ridiculous, but somehow it's exploitation anyway. But that's really, of course, the guts of the economic aspect of Marxism, and it was essentially demolished by von Bavir. Of course, the, 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 by the way, the famous story here is a true story. That in volume two of Capital, by this time Marx had died, and Engels was engaged in this great work of, of coming out with getting, getting Marx's old notes together and getting into a book form, in volume two of Capital, in the preface, uh, Engels teasingly, sort of, I think childishly, uh, uh, organized the game. Let's see how the Marx is going to solve the great problem. The great problem, of course, is this, from volume one of Capital. If, if profits come from exploitation of, of workers and profit rates are reduced, then, of course, whenever cap there's capital investment, how is it the profit rates are really about the same on the market? So what's the, what's the story here? Why isn't it true that the, that the profit rate in, say, a heavy cap heavily capitalized industry is much lower on a profit rate, say, in ditch digging, which should be very high. And he said, well, this, in volume three, Marx will solve this great problem. So he, he offered, Engels offered a contest. Let's everybody get to it and see how Marx solved it, see if they can predict how Marx solved it. And a lot of people, you know, engage in this contest. Was, of course, there's no prize <laughs> at the end. But at any rate, they, they came out with this, how can you solve this insoluble problem? In other words, you either have a labor theory value, or you give, either give that up, or you give up the idea that profit rates are equalized on the market. Difficult for the Marxists to give up either one. Uh, anyway, nobody solved it supposedly, and then it comes out with a alleged solution, which Bombardier then riddles patiently point by point, and shows that Marxists essentially gave up, implicitly gave up the labor theory of value, because he obviously had to admit that profits tend to be equalized on the market, and therefore labor theory of value has to be shot. And of course, Marx doesn't admit it, but he points out he has to admit it, etc., etc. The interesting thing is the reaction of, I think many Marxists gave up the thing altogether. Achille Loria, kind of a sweet, was kind of a sweet reaction to all this. Loria was an Italian Marxist. We didn't have to wait for Bombardier's critique. He realized immediately when he, when he read volume three, the whole thing was shot. And he, and he was very bitter because he had previously said that Capital is the greatest book of all time. It's the, it's the fulcrum of world life or whatever. When volume three came out, Loria said that, um, that this is the Russian campaign of Marx. And it was the, Analogy, of course, in Napoleon's Russian campaign. This is the end, it's suicide, he's had it, Marxism is finished. The other Marxists who try to remain Marxists to this day, what they did is essentially change the art in terms of the debate. They said, well, Marx didn't mean, Marx didn't mean it when he meant, when he talked about value, he didn't mean prices, he didn't mean influences on relative price, he meant something else. He meant some kind of mystical embodiment of value. So it has nothing to do with the price system. Of course, Marx thought he had something to do with the price system. The Mar this is typical, of course, Marxist reaction to criticism. When predictions are made, when Marx makes a prediction, for example, the workers are going to get worse and worse off until they finally revolt, and obviously not getting worse and worse off, the Marxist reaction is, well, he, Marx didn't mean worse off, he meant relatively worse off to wealthier people. 
you, you shift the terms of the debate. You'll never be wrong. It's a non-falsifiable proposition. So the, the Marxist reaction laws, those who continue to be Marxist, well, Marx didn't mean, mean meant values in some sort of mystical sense. The, the values were embodied by labor and nothing to do with prices. Well, uh, Marx, I don't think, meant that. But this is the fallback position. This is the position of Hilferding, for example, so-called refutation of Bambaver. Uh, Mises tells the story about Otto Bauer, who was the leading Austrian Marxist for many years, a friend of Mises, at least for a while. And Bauer enrolled in Bambaverick's seminar for a couple of years in order to refute it, in order to refute Bambaverick's refutation of Marx, to be the definitive refutation. He never did it. And he admitted to Mises one time, well, you know, this, this, this is it. There's no refutation. <laughs> the labor theory value is shot. And one interesting thing is, uh, sort of a footnote to this, uh, this saga, is that the most, uh, the most highly praised recent book on Marxism, uh, which is by Thomas Sowell on Marxism, also takes the Marxist line that Bombardier didn't understand Marx and he meant something else. And uh, it's a strange book. The, Marx, the Sowell book is essentially a pro-Marxist book which has been billed by propagandists as the, the definitive critique of Marxism. If I leave that to you. It's a kind of interesting saga. Uh, the, um, there's also a charming, um, a couple of charming quotes by Alexander Gray, my favorite humorous uh, economic writer, historian of economic thought. And he's going through all this stuff. He's a marvelous book called The Socialist Tradition. He's, he's, he's going through all the socialists. He talks about the, the attempts of various Marxists to try to explain why Marx didn't really mean value. What did he really mean when he talked about value? He takes off on G.D.H. Cole's book, which is called What Marx Really Meant, and uh, tries to explain this, etc. So here's a, here's a charming quote from, uh, from Gray. See, this is a critique of Cole. The identity of value and embodied labor was surely something Marx thought he had proved, which therefore required proof in the opening pages of Capital. If the identity of value and labor is a matter of definition, as the, as the Marx, neo-Marxists said, an assumption, then at least we know the meaning Marx attaches to value. But in that case, the pretended proof in the opening chapter is mere eyewash. Since one states but does, but does not prove definition. So if the whole thing is simply a definition, well, it's value because I say it is, what, why does he go through the whole book? Also, in that case, he adds, it is to be feared that the whole of capital, resting on an arbitrary definition which implies the conclusion to be reached, is an example of wandering vainly in a circle, even more than the most critical critics have thought possible. If, on the other hand, the identity of value and labor is a matter of proof and not of definition, we are still left to grope for the meaning Marx attaches to the word value. Uh, <clears throat> to conclude with, uh, with Ray uh, on Marx's value theory, to witness Bombardier or Mr. Joseph H.W.B. Joseph wrote a book on labor theory, value, and Marx. To witness Bombardier or Joseph carving up Marx is, is but a pedestrian pleasure. For these are but pedestrian writers who are so pedestrian as to clutch at the plain meaning of words, not realizing that what Marx really meant, Cole, has no necessary connection with, with what Marx undeniably said. <laughs> to witness Marx surrounded by his friends is, however, a joy of an entirely different order. For it is fairly clear that none of them really knows what Marx really meant. There are even a considerable doubt as to what he was talking about. There are hints that Marx himself did not know what he was doing. <laughs> In particular, there's no one to tell us what Marx thought he meant by value. And I think that's, uh, I sense the last word on Marx, because I think the, the entire, uh, that's a whole other saga, uh, the entire Marxian canon is essentially a, religi a prophetic religious movement of a, of a weird kind. What I'm advocating here is essentially back to Bombardier, I'm going to put that on a sloganeering term, Bombardier has been denigrated. He's he essentially fulfilled the uh, Mangerian mission and applied Mangerian Austrian economics to uh, capital and, and interest, and, and successfully so, I think. 
Uh, and then Fetter, of course, I'm going to add him to the arrow here, and, and then Mises. <clears throat> so I think that's, well, I think that's basically what I want to say in the, uh, in the lecture, and uh, it's going to be a few minutes, but I'll wrap it up now and go for questions. Thank you. Marie. Um, I, my impression is is that um, von Bauwerk was uh, and, and Mises had a little had uh, different approaches and feelings about governmental bureaucracy. Um, do I have that Mises essentially was more tolerant of tolerant? It, more tolerant of it? More tolerant bureaucracy? Oh, that's oh, pretty. Pretty similar. I mean, Bombard, I should say about Bombard, he was not a pure academic, a member or two of the civil servant, <clears throat> a member of parliament. Uh, Bombard was a minister of finance. I think Menger was a minister of commerce for a few years. Uh, Bombard was a minister of finance several times. He sort of alternated a seminar, a professorship, and, and minister of finance. He was the one responsible for going to the gold standard. And generally a free market type. I don't think he, you know, didn't, he didn't engage in political economic analysis as much as Mises did. That was basically, I think, in the same uh, area. Um, and uh, one of the one of my one another Bombardier mystery is there's no life of course there's no biography of Menger and there's no bi- my own biography of Bombardier because okay, another research project so nothing one of the Bombardier died fairly young he died immediately after World War One broke out and the story is he might have committed suicide well Menger Mises says he was very depressed because the wars meant, meant the end of Western civilization as far as he was concerned and uh, there's also a story he might have committed suicide as a result of that <clears throat> so that's the whole uh, the whole question about you know, the whole world was falling apart. Indeed, it was falling apart. Whole classical liberalism and peaceful uh, world, peaceful Europe, and so on and so on. I don't. I think their views are fairly similar. I don't think they. I mean, Bombard didn't have much. didn't have much time for any much except this. These three volume work and the different editions of it and different artic, various journal articles. But basically, he too was was wrapped up in uh, statesmanship. But, uh, I'm not sure what his theory of bureaucracy was. Again, this is the whole thing. I don't know if there are Bombardier papers. Must be Bombardier papers somewhere. I'm not sure where they are. Something to be explored. Yeah, different. Yeah, a couple of things about Menger. Mm-hmm. Hayek mentions in his introduction to the principles that <coughs> Menger was an activist in the Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. So maybe that'll help give us an indication of his policy. Well, I'm not sure. It could be, you know, I guess liberalism was many things. It could be laissez-faire liberalism or it could be some sort of very moderate. I'm not sure. I'm really sure. I say Schweizer claimed he was a hardcore laissez-faire liberal. And uh, the, a book called The Gold Standard, edited by... I, uh, mm. that uh, brings out Menger's position on the gold standard, which uh, not, only, yeah. not only favored for, because he favored sound, sound money, yeah. it's because it limited the expansion of the state. Yeah. So. That probably, it's probably true. But he also has some status remarks yeah. in his book on money. Uh, so he is evidently somewhat of a mixed bag in, in that respect. It's, who is the Upbush? The fellow who wrote in the Barry Smith book on Menger's uh, political theory, political views, keeps talking about the Austrian uh, political theory. The E O T V O S was about free umlauts. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but uh, he sounded pretty pretty status to me. But I'm not, you know, David, you, you know anything about the Upbush? Yeah, the Austrian Empire should maintain its traditional custom, kind of have local control over things. And Eric Vogel liked him quite a lot. He was sort of a Burkean type conservative, yeah. actually. He, he was fairly influential at fun. He didn't have any particular views on economics, but he was more like uh, suggesting that the 
really desirable to maintain the customs of the old regime. Definitely like the uh, Austrian Empire mm -hmm. didn't want to have any democratic or mm -hmm. national government. He was very much against nationalism. Mm -hmm. For, for whatever it's worth, it, remember that point that Slobinger made in Vienna that uh, Menger and Rudolph have co-authored anonymous political pamphlets. Well, that's right. Very that. hardcore anti-statist, was they fair? That's right. And that Rudolph got exiled to yeah. Budapest for. So, that's right. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah, they were anonymous, like anonymously. I don't see anonymous, like the hidden Menger. That's great. <laughs> I wonder if you might say a, a few words about Wieserth uh, and how it is that he got the somewhat odd views, at least for an Austrian, that, that he did. Uh, well, he was a Fabian socialist. Uh, Rick Steve was also a Fabian, although he certainly doesn't write like one. He's a like hardcore market person. And uh, he also used, the, I think the, perhaps the first one to use the idea of the Pigou idea that since you have a diminishing margin utility of money, that somehow this means that you should have a progressive income tax to, to equalize, you know, to maximize general social utility. I think it's the origin of that. I'm not sure how, you know, why he deviated or whatever. Then, of course, there's no biography of him either. <laughs> I don't know. I know Mises in his notes and recollections is very bitter about, about Wieser. And didn't, didn't consider he was more valued much at all. As a matter of fact, when Hayek was first introduced himself to Mises, he'd been... And a letter of recommendation from Beezer, which almost killed Hayek's chances in Beezer's. <laughs> not quite, but uh, I'm not considered a positive recommendation. <laughs> so I'm not sure about getting in. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I read Beezer's Beezer's social economics, didn't think much of it. You know, I didn't see much in there of, of much value. Um, there's a section in uh, volume two of Von Bobert's work, mm -hmm. a section called The Law of Costs, in which he. Uh, <clears throat> elaborates on the cost of production view of price determination. Mm. And he says that uh, it's possible to reconcile this with the uh, demand utility approach. Oh, yeah. So you reconcile the backward uh, looking toward the past price determination with the looking toward the future view. Well, the, well, the, costs, are, the costs are looking to the future. The costs are the expected productivity of the, of the factor you know, to the consumers. So the, in other words, the costs are also a subjective uh, concept. Well, so people as, people pay for factory production. They think it will bring certain value to the entrepreneur, based on what consumers will pay for, how much will be produced, and what consumers will pay for it. I didn't think he was using that version mm -hmm. of cost. I think he was using the classical uh, version of cost as monetary outlay. And I, I'm not quite sure how uh, how's, how he's able to tie them together. Well, I think um, I basically think he was he used this version of cost, like you know it's. I realized that was developed more over, over time, but I think he was uh, basically an opportunity cost Austrian. That's, uh, and certainly Jevons, to the extent he wrote about it, was. Yeah. Uh, Larry White says that von Bobert was distinctly not a praxeologist, and that Mises' work on methodology was to some extent a repudiation of his mentor. Do you think that's much to do about nothing? Well, why didn't Mises ever say it? Mises was not reluctant to talk about what his views were. There's nothing in Mises that's think he repudiated from Bobber, quite the opposite. He always hailed him as his predecessor. 
The whole style of yeah. Barbert's presentation is clearly quite right. theological. It's, right. like, it's kind of logical deduction, reading his book. It's like he starts from scratch and then builds on right. things. It's just the right. same style as me. It's ridiculous to think that there is any kind of principal right. difference between the two, even though Barbert did not write much on, the, on methodology. He has some remarks which are scored in various places, but there is no indication. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful book from Barbert. Actually, the, one of the problems with Barbert, I, I realize that the, the Smart translation is the first edition, and so the Zenholz translation is the third edition. But I think I think I don't, I don't know German that well. But I know Smart was a much better English writer in English. So the von Barbert on the Smart edition is a is a great writer and it's flowed beautifully. So I don't know whether it's a Smart himself or was himself a good writer or whatever. But uh, I would recommend reading that to get the flow of von Barbert, step by step, and you know, everything fits together. Zenholz's tradition and translation is kind of choppy and wooden. And uh, as a matter of fact, when I talked to Emil Catter about this, who of course read, read both translations and all the rest of it, but the original, he said he thought the smart translation was a better period. So let's, <clears throat> yeah. Can you briefly explain the difference between Menger, Bombowark, and Mises, and Lachman's notion of capital, and how Lachman's notion of capital and structure production leads to a nihilist view? Uh, well, Lachman's, Lachman's book, Capital and Structure, is basically from Barbaric Misesian's book. It's the early Lachman, Lachman Mooks 1, okay? And that was, you know, that's a, that's a fine book, I mean, all for it. It talks about this, how the stock market fits into all this. So the titles to share, I mean, share, um, shares of titles to capital fit into the whole structure of allocating resources to the proper and best manner, etc. So that's a great book. That's essentially a Barbaric Misesian book. What happened was the Lachlan, after, somewhere, sometime after that, discovered shackle and nihilism and then became a Shaquillian. And so that's, you know, it's Lachman 2. <laughs> There's not much you can say about that except it's, it's, it's institutionalist. It's nihilist and institutionalist. There are no economic laws. You can't predict the future. You don't know what's going on. It's all sort of chaotic or colitic, as Lachman likes to put it. And uh, that's about it. I mean, that's kind of a boring thing in a sense. I mean, even if it were true, it would be boring. It's, of course, false, but the... It's really about all you can say is everything is colitic and period, and you sort of wipe out all of economics. <laughs> but I think I don't see much. I think Bombardier definitely he's more of the Misesian praxeological tradition than Menger in a sense of step-by-step analysis and uh, everything flowing logically from the uh, axioms. Yeah, Roger. Murray earlier you said that uh, you thought or the Bombardier was unfair to to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you say something similar to that about uh, his treatment of Cassell and the notion of mm. waiting and, and uh, all that was? Uh, I don't know. I haven't really used focused on. It. I know Cassell was sort of an aggregativist type, kind of a Fisher type, but uh, and also didn't have the uh, sort of the array view of you know, price index view, etc. But he might have been. He was. You, know, you can't, as I say, he had this. Or he had this idea that everybody before him was, has to be demolished. And once in a while, he mentions somebody unfairly, and I'm not, he might be with, with the only one he didn't he didn't do that with John Ray. But of course, John Ray he discovered after was discovered after he wrote his first edition, and in 1903 or whatever, he came out with this, the edition. Then he hailed John Ray as a great predecessor. So, uh, over that time, he sort of established his strategy for the first volume. <clears throat> so it might be, I mean, it might be unfair. You can't, you know, it's sort of uh, you have to go back and, and check it. Yeah. Um, if the uh the paper favorable to uh, Turgot is still uh, in Hayek's basement. Mm-hmm. Well, how is it known that uh, von Bobrick was 
so favorable in the beginning. Because Hayek discloses what he said. No, Hayek reported this, that he heralds Turgot's interest theory as a predecessor of his own work. So, let's tell me how it's in the Turgot edition. The marvelous translation, English translation of all Turgot's economics works by Gronovagin. He's got that in there, reporting this from Hayek. So, I can see Hayek disgorge this, or his estate, or whatever, and get you know get this, get a translator or whatever. It should be fascinating. Yeah. Well, my seems to be nothing else on Menger and Barber. Mm-hmm. I think you're being a little unfair to Tom Sowell's mm-hmm. book about Marxism. I think that uh, uh, the Sowell's point about uh, <coughs> Marx and the labor <coughs> definition of that. In fact, I think Tom states specifically in his book that Marx did not give a labor theory of value, he gave a labor definition of value. And mm-hmm. this, this is a, a bit of controversy. And given that Marx is, in many cases, not sufficiently coherent to be termed right or wrong, <laughs> I, think, I, I think that you are being a little bit unfair to me. I think I'm being not unfair enough, because uh, he's got, <laughs> he's got a, uh, he says about the, and Marx, he says that these other guys never mention, never cite Marx directly, Samuelson and so forth. And he said, Marx never has a labor theory. It doesn't mention the word labor theory of value. And, of course, he did. And, and there's a review of my David Ramsey Steele and International Philosophical Quarterly points that out. This nail soul of the wall. And this points out it's right in there and quotes it. And so I think that's... Um, he does other things like that, too. He's very arrogant. I mean, so it's bad enough to be arrogant when you're justified. It's very, it's, I think very bad to be arrogant when it's not justified at all. And I think that's the situation with soul. And I think the Conway book is infinitely better as an introduction of Marx. And so is. I think what happened to Sowell, if you read the Sowell book carefully, you'll find out that the citations almost all about early before 1963. So it's pretty clear he wrote that this, this is a collection of his notes written when he was a Marxist, Sowell, and just simply, simply put together and, and you add on an anti-Stalinist chapter, and that's about it. I think that's the way the inception of a book, this is annual book, this is contribution last year. Yeah, Roger. With, with modern Marxists, uh, do they tend to defend this labor theory value or reject it? It seems like there's, there's a big problem either way. Yeah, if if they defend is. it, then predictably they'll say very silly things. But if they reject it, then they're just at sea without rudder. There's, there's, yeah. Everything collapses. They basically, they tend to reject it. Yeah. I don't know. Beats well, me. The overall social philosophy. Yeah, the class struggle. The evolution of mankind right. through this stages of feudalism, Imperial, yeah. socialism, right. all the rest of them, that, that they try to rescue, but there are, I mean, to my knowledge, there's hardly any, any Marxist who will defend labor theory of value, even though they all recognize that that is the core of Marxism. <laughs> Yeah. Well, there, was yeah. one at, there was one at NYU, I can't think of his name. Uh, Becker. Becker. Yeah. Now, he, he proudly defended the labor theory value. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty few and far between. But I can't remember what he said. Yeah. Which is hard to remember. Yeah. Now, basically, they fall back and say, on soci- general sociology or, or whatever. Now, alienation, of course, is a big one. And uh, the labor theory value gets shunted aside somewhere. But, but it's interesting because Marxism tends to flourish not in economics but in other softer disciplines, literature, sociology, all these benighted areas <laughs> where it flourishes. But then economics is really fairly free of it. I think that's an American phenomenon. Is it? <laughs> I think that's an American phenomenon. Yeah, but even, in, but even in, in the communist countries, the leading forces giving up Marxism are the economists, you know, Yugoslavia and Hungary, etc. Always in the forefront of abandoning the whole damn thing and 
going on in some sort of market. And in Germany, I would say that too. Well, mm. Among economists, you don't find Marxists. I mean, not Marxist in the sense that they think that that is the philosophy that they use as their guide, guideline or whatever. You find among sociologists, political scientists, you know, uh, German, English, literature, you name it, you got it. But the economic outright Marxist is a rare occasion. It's a toughie. <laughs> Independent. There's something about the discipline of economics, I think, that sort of puts a conservatizing influence in general. You know, the fact that you can't, can't eat your cake and have it at the same time is sort of, a, sort of, a dis, sort of self-discipline. Yeah, that's yeah. We're not really on the topic, but since we're on it, why don't you tell us a little bit about, like, you just said you just finished your work on Marx. Oh, yeah. You give us a little crazy of your view of Marx. Yeah, okay, thank you. I, but the, the, <laughs> What happened to me is I, I set out to write a short book on history of economic thought. And it's got longer and longer and longer because I can't leave out good guys, I can't leave out bad guys. And they find more and more good guys and bad guys all over the place. Uh, in the case of Marx, I thought, well, everybody knows about Marx, labor theory, value, and bingo. And I found out, of course, there's a lot more to it. And I had to plow my way through Hegel. Well, that was something I do not wish on my worst uh, foes. <laughs> anyway, any rate, the, uh, uh, what I think of uh, the essence... Uh, Marx is worse than we might think. In other words, the whole thing is really a religious doctrine. It uh, comes from, uh, it starts off with, uh, with the Christian heresy, and actually Neoplatonic movement, Christian heresies in, in the early Christian period. It continues on as a sort of a, a, an underground movement, the basis of which, well, the two, the two aspects of it. One is creatology, the science of how, how the universe was created, or why did God create the universe? This might seem to many here, here as an esoteric topic, okay? but interesting enough, it's, very, it's something like praxeology. Theology, I find, is very interesting. It's something like praxeology. One slip and you've had it. I mean, one slip and you've had a deductive chain. You make one slip somewhere in the early premises, you're sort of finished. You wind up with bizarre deviations. So what happens, uh, the, the orthodox Christian view, which is a safe view, by the way, um, in all these areas, probably I can see, the Orthodox Christian view is God created the universe out of love for his creatures. And there's no political implications or sociological implications from this. The heretical view was that God created the universe because God was dissatisfied, was, was lonely or whatever you want, whatever, like, uh, imperfect. Okay. So you start off with the, um, with the, the, view, the viewpoint, which starts with, say, with Plotinus and the Neoplatonists goes down, is that you start with... Uh, the world, God and man are unified. Now, how man and God could be, cre- could be unified before creation, I don't know. Don't ask me to explain this. I can only report it. Okay. So God and man are sort of together one cosmic blob, but, un- but unfulfilled, imperfect. Then God creates the universe as an act of desperation to try to fulfill God's uh, functions or soul or whatever. And then you have creation. A creation becomes then, this heretical Christian heresy view, a... Uh, an act of evil, because what you have is you split the original unity of man and God. Uh, before that, man, God, and nature, before creation, were unified. That was the great thing about it. Then, with the creation of the universe, everything gets split into atom, atoms and individuals and species and all the rest of it. So man, the collective capital M, of course, the species, is now cut off from nature and cut off from God. Yeah. And of course, individual men are cut off from each other because they're really a part of a collective blob. So, at this point, the... The good thing, the bad thing about it is this alien. This is where the concept of alienation comes. In. Alienation does not mean psychological, uh, you know, disturbance because you don't like what's going on or something like that. Alienation is a fundamental act of creation involved in creation itself. 
man, God, and nature alienated from each other. Okay? So then what happens is, is that now a determined, determined process by which God fulfills himself in some way, man fulfills himself, and a species development. And finally, as, a, as an ultimate act, the final end of the universe, eschatology, the, uh, the last days, where man and God re- rejoin each other in the great blob again, at this time at a higher level, known as the return. Now, this, uh, whatever we want to say about this, it's very collectivist, okay? Because the individual means nothing. The individual person is nothing, just a cell in this great collective organism. And uh, so when you say mass progressing, it means the species is progressing toward this, this higher level with an ultimate reunion with God. Okay? What happens uh, later as things develop, okay, with this, uh, after the Christian period, Middle Ages, etc., this gets pantheized with Hegel. The entire Romantic period is a, is a pantheization of this. God drops out as a supernatural person or being or whatever, and you have the, what you're left with is collect the man, the species, then fulfilling, finding out that man and God are really the same thing. And that's the ultimate, the ultimate consciousness, etc. You wind up with a cosmic blob. This time God has dropped out. Man and God are the same thing. You have a sort of pantheistic thing, or all is one. Okay? This is the end of the end of history, the end of the universe. And the entire romantic period, by the way, is saturated with this crap. And this is, this is, there's a wonderful book by M. H. Abram, which I recommend everybody, called "Natural Supernaturalism," which is, and, and, and analyzes all the romantic literature and philosophy, basically Wordsworth and Coleridge and Hegel and Schleiermacher and Schlegel and Schiller and all these people, mostly German and English. They all have this viewpoint, more or less, down to D. H. Lawrence, by the way. The idea that they have this, this species development winding up of the end of alienation and uh, everything is great and perfect as the end of history, as the man is reintegrated with nature and gone and the rest of it. So what you have with Marx is an atheist version of this pantheism. Hegel was a pantheist. Hegel, of course, believed that he himself was the final culmination. He was the ultimate God person because he invented the theory. <laughs> so this makes him sort of the, the world historical figure. Uh, and Marx atheized it. See, instead of having instead of talking about God at all, you just, you just have a collective species blob man with capital M. So what you have is the, the final eschatology, of course, is the, is the, is the communist system where the, everything is then integrated. All individuals are, are joined together in a collective blob, which then results in the end of history. So this is sort of an atheized version of a pantheized version of Christian, original Christian heresy or neoplatonic heresy. And you have the apocalyptic, you know, final conflict where the, all these things, of course, there's a final conflict with good and evil or good triumphs over evil and you have a, you know, a final, it puts an end to history. All this thing that makes, I wouldn't say it makes sense out of Marx, we understand what the heck he's talking about. He was involved in this kind of uh, a prophet of this doctrine. <clears throat> if you look at his early poems, so-called early poems, even more interesting. Early poems does not mean he was a kid of 12. Okay? He was a graduate student. I figure if you're a graduate student, you're responsible for your own product. Right? <laughs> he wrote these very interesting poems, which have been translated, most of them, and, and plays, which are really hair-raising, because he essentially sets forth his program. This is before he knew about the labor theory of value. Right? <laughs> this is when he was the ultimate sort of vision of the world. The vision of the world was, and what he said was, explicitly was, he hates the universe because God created it. It means that God's a greater person than he is. Therefore, his goal is to destroy the universe. This, of course, fits in with the rest of his, of his program. Right? So anyway, it's a fascinating study. And how can I leave this stuff out, right, as the book keeps growing and growing? <laughs> anyway, it's a sort of encapsulated version of the Marxian, the Marxian vision. And of course, first he, and this is, of course, accepted. He becomes a communist. And then he looks around for, in other words, he's got the, Comes the communist. Communism is the final goal. How, does, how do you bring it about? If you have religion, if you have the second coming, or Messiah comes, you have the mechanism. Of course, Marx couldn't talk about, about a Messiah. So what's going to be 
You have to have some inevitable law of history that determines the final outcome. The rest of his life, he's searching for the economic forces. How does this work? Why does capitalism inevitably lead to communism? The final apocalyptic moment when the worker, working class takes over. He's trying to find the mechanism. So the last 30 years of his life or whatever, he's trying to figure out how, how it must work. But the goal of communism was established from very early, 1844 or whatever. <clears throat> and the rest of us kind of spin out how the, messi- how the messianic age is going to take place without the Messiah. It's difficult to do it. And he, I guess he tried nobly or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and flopped. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> sort of a capsule view of it. Yeah. Well, this is Marx's version, Marx's view. Yeah. And uh, by the way, some good books on this. The Tucker book is the best book. It's extremely difficult reading. It's Robert C. Tucker. It's called uh, the Philosophy and Myth and Karl Marx. And it's almost as difficult reading as Marx himself or Hegel. But it's it's very it's, it's worth it. And uh, it's really got most of this most of this in there. Other books, Bruce Maslisch book, which is in paperback, on the meaning of meaning of Karl Marx, is that it? Right. Uh, it's quite good. I was surprised that Maslisch is usually a Freudian historian. This time he's really he was very, played it straight, talked about the religious prophetic. So we have now more you know, stuff which is uh, pretty good on all of this, analyzing it. And we've more or less transcended the idea of the early Marx and the, and the late Marx. There's one Marx, one bad guy, okay? And starting out with the, with the, the communism and destruction eschatology and trying to figure out how to, how to work it. And uh, interestingly enough, the idea that there were two Marxes, the... Uh, <laughs> The humanist type said, yes, the early Marx is great, because the early Marx talks about freedom and alienation. Then he gets bad because he talks about labor theory, value, and economics. It's too rational. So this is the new, the new left Marxist. And then you have the uh, Stalinists, like Althusser, who said, no, no, the early Marx is crazy. The, the late Marx is great because he's talking about economics. And, of course, the conclusion is there's only one Marx, and this is, it's all different aspects of the same, uh, same galoot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Doesn't Soul in his book uphold this young Marx old Marx? Uh, I think so. He doesn't really talk about the philosophic aspect much at all. I think he does, yeah. Right, where, yeah. I think I missed a minute ago. Where, where does Soul go wrong? What, what are the claims that Soul makes? Well, I mean, he thinks that Bombardier did not refute Marxian, that Bombardier didn't understand Marx, and that uh, Marx didn't talk, didn't talk about prices and things like that. <clears throat> and uh, he doesn't really deal with much of any of this. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's the weak book. Conway, on the other hand, is quite good. I mean, it's, it's not perfect. It's, I think it uh, deals with most of these, most of the problems. <clears throat> not so much of the religion aspect. But, um, or I think we're arguing as far as where David Graham and Steele found the... Oh, well, but it's a short review. And Steele, he has the quote... I mean, what is this? The, uh, the Where's the Steele piece? Yeah, I, I, I yeah. have seen... Inter- International Philosophical Quarterly. Uh, let's see what the issue was. It's uh, June 1986, International Philosophical Quarterly. And so it, it could be longer, but it's a nice short, it's a short review, but it really, it really spears them. But Solo said was that Marx nowhere refers to a theory of value, despite a numerous and undocumented interpretive literature to the contrary. What Steele pointed out is there it is. I mean, he cited the exact, the exact quotes. So um, that was just one feature of it. I'm sure so of steel, if necessary, could, could work out a whole thing there. He's got a lot to say about the solo book. It was Benton Mars. So, uh, yeah. David was a, a Marxist. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, Marx. I have a couple of questions. Before Marx became a Hegelian, what, what was he doing? I understand he was a fairly good classical economist. Yeah, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't interested in economics. 
His first, uh, first wrote poems about destroying the universe. That was the first step. And then he became Hegelian. <laughs> okay. And uh, economics really comes in much later when he's trying to figure out, as I say, what the path is toward uh, to the inevit allegedly inevitable communism. <clears throat> I've heard, I can't remember where, a number of times that capital was really written by Hegel, and then Marx just... Written by Hegel? Had, had Marx with Hegel. Yeah, Engels. Really mean Engels. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I, that's... Well, I don't know. I, you know, that's interesting. I, Gary North has written a second edition of his book on Marxism, Marxism, Religion, and Revolution, right? And... Uh, well, Gary North claims that Engels really did most of the work. He was a theorist, and he, he, he revered Marx because Marx had a PhD, <laughs> and Engels didn't. So early case of PhD-itis. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I, I mean yeah, it's, it's interesting speculation. There, <clears throat> there's uh, various views of it. Engels really was a, was a real theorist. There's other views. Engels was a, was a bad guy. It's the view of the 50s or so. That Engels was a Stalinist, quote-unquote. I'm not really sure. I mean, it needs more investigation if one is interested in investigating it. Because the two are very close. They kept, and while, while, Engel, while Marx was alive, he read everything Engels wrote, and you know, whatever. So it's sort, of like, sort of like a joint product. Also, there's a, there's a tendency to whitewash Marx by saying Engels is a bad guy. For example, the dialectical materialism question. A hidden, it's a, it's a part of Marxism that Marxists don't like to talk about, because the idea that dialectical materialism applies to all of life, you know, the cell negates the cell and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't, this doesn't sit well with most people. So the uh, theory is, well, Engels is the guy who's interested in Darwin and biology and things like that, and Marx wasn't. It turns out Marx was just as interested. So, I don't know, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's an interesting area of speculation. Yes, Marx sent his, sent his work, he asked Darwin if he would be allowed ah, to dedicate right. the book to him. <clears throat> and, but Darwin never replied. Or, or, <laughs> yeah. I don't question what he did, but he, at least he didn't agree. No. And uh, so Marx worked that way. Economics from his father-in-law. I don't know if I'm best following. No, I don't think so. I never heard that. Mm. He liked his father-in-law very much. Yeah. Mm. Evidently, those had a very, uh, very close relationship, and yeah. that was the explanation why, in spite of the fact that the, that the family of Marx's wife was actually opposed to the marriage. The only one of, out of the family who was in favor of the marriage of Marx to von Westphal was this, his father-in-law. Mm. Uh, all the rest of them hated the fact that they were the nobility family and all the rest of it, and Marx wasn't. And Marx, until the end of his life, was very proud of the fact that he had married oh, yeah. a person from nobility. Oh, yeah, his wife had him great calling cards, Baroness von Westphal. That's, right. that's why he also made tremendous efforts to hide that he also had legitimate kids because, yeah. because if you're married to a wife from nobility, that's not the kind of thing you do to her. <laughs> yeah. By the way, Gary North was very interesting. One of the contributions of the book is the only place I've seen, he also the standard of living indexes of what Marx was living on, how much what the purchasing power was, it was. It turns out Marx generally was living on a very high income level, supplied to him by, mostly by Engels, of course, and by his other benefactors. But he was always bitching about shortage of money, he was always borrowing, never paying back, and so forth. But he lived apparently at quite high income level, went through it like water, and then accused everybody else of having a money fetish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, back there. Marx is so blatantly wrong about so many things. Why is it so hard to bury him once and for all? 
Well, I think I say I think it's religious. It's a religious movement, and uh, this true believer kind of thing. It's difficult to then, you know, penetrate with sort of rational argument. And that's basically it. I mean, that does happen, of course. People get converted out of Marxism quite frequently. But uh, I guess a good spot to end the, end the session. Thank you very much.